Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. He is the solid rock. What a privilege to be able to stand upon such a firm foundation and to be able to give praise to his holy name. Uh, Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17 is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're in Genesis 9. Verses 8 through 17. This is God's word. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. All that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh. That is on the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, we come now to the conclusion of the flood account, which means I should probably stop using the term post-diluvian in my sermon titles. Really, I couldn't help myself. First of all, you learn a new word, you want to get as much mileage out of it as as you can, (laughs) right? Second, over these past uh, couple of weeks, we've had the privilege of looking at some monumentally significant events that occurred directly after the flood, including the providence of God. The providence, or the divine sovereign control over every aspect of his creation, including the great deluge, the detailed description of Yahweh's upholding of his clouds, directing of his raindrops, the governing of all creatures, actions, and things, down to the emergence of every ounce of water from his ground which he caused to prevail upon or conquer his globe, followed, of course, by his providentially causing the waters to subside, to subside to the point where a little over a year he would cause a floating box containing the last of all flesh to rest rest atop the mountains of Ararat. This was post-diluvian providence. Then last week, we considered the post-diluvian preservation, as not only did 
Yahweh preserved the lives of the eight human beings upon the ark in chapter 7 and 8, but he preserved many human lives to, to come by giving Noah a law, a statute, by introducing guidelines and barriers in order to keep the slaying of innocent blood, as we saw in chapter 4, in check. By introducing guidelines and barriers in order to keep people from killing one another and just slaying one another recklessly. Uh, chapter 9, so we saw the first, but certainly not the last, demand for capital punishment. Whoever spills the blood of man made, of God, made in God's image, by man shall his blood be shed, we read. Yahweh is the author of life. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. And the one to whom all of our lives belong. And the good news is he values human life. He values our life. He values your life. Did you know that? That he values your life? He's not like us where some lives matter depending on the political climate. No, all lives matter to Yahweh. Yahweh honors the sanctity of human life. All life, whether rich or poor, male or female, black or white, healthy or skinny, born or unborn even. He values them all. Because they all belong to him. They are his. For they all bear his image. And as the owner of all life, he's also the only one with free license to do with our lives whatever he pleases. In chapter 7, he sovereignly predetermined to end nearly all human and animal life upon the earth. That was his right. However, just two chapters later, he puts a, an institution in place to preserve human life to prevent his creatures from foolishly thinking they have the same authority over life that he does. I can assure you, we do not. Those who have no regard for human life, those who shed the blood of his image bearers in malicious or wanton fashion, whether inside the womb or outside of the womb, will have to stand before their creator to give an account for that shed blood. And though we almost always see the opposite today, it's the role of human government to arrange that meeting and to do so in a timely manner, manner. This is one way. This is just one way that God has graciously determined to preserve human life throughout the generations. So, we considered the post-Diluvian providence, the post-Diluvian preservation, and now for this morning, the post-Diluvian promise. The post-Diluvian promise. And this promise, this promise is so sweet. It's sweet indeed. It has universal application to all of us sitting in here this morning. So let's dive in uh, to verse 8, be encouraged by God's inspired word. Point one in your outline, Moses writes, then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, let's stop right there, we're just about to read the words of a divine promise, okay? God will say, I will establish my covenant with you. I think the best definition of covenant is an oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way. So here we see God, the promise maker, establishing a blessing upon Noah and his sons with him, making a pledge, uh, uh, forming an alliance even, placing himself under obligation to maintain an oath that is to be fulfilled. An oath which will be fulfilled considering the source, right? 
You see, this, the source of this promise is the foundation of this promise. A promise is only good as the one who makes it, right? It's only as good as the one who gives it. A promise is only as good as the one who gives their word, who swears their allegiance to keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I, I've seen many a promise made, but not nearly as many of those promises kept. Specifically, and typically by those who campaign on the slogan, promises made, promises kept. Whatever you say. Now, American politicians, including presidents from all parties, have the notorious reputation of being some of the biggest promise makers in the history of the world. It's clear to me that in order to secure such a position, to make your way up the ladder of political success, one must have no problem at all lying through their teeth to get votes in order to obtain or retain power. And, and this lying, this outright lying, includes the repeated breaking of promises made on the campaign trails. That's a fact. But it's not only politicians. Think of people throughout your life, even friends throughout your lifetime, who have made promises to you and then broken them. Family members who have sworn to have your back in a pinch only to bail on you when you needed them most. Institutions, corporations, organizations who have pledged to provide you with something that would be of extreme value to you, only to fall short, and either to fall short in their pledge or be discovered for the crooks they are, really even in their advertisements, right? As they whisper faintly into our ears, did God really say that? We are inundated with a constant barrage of false promises to taste the forbidden fruits and to delight in the pleasures of sin, sin which never satisfies, delights which never actually come to fruition. This is why it's always wise to consider the source when believing the many promises that are being made to you on a daily basis. Consider the source. Consider the source of your information. Consider the source of your expectations. Consider the source of the one who is binding themselves to some obligation. Are they friend or foe? Are they ally or adversary? That's the question. In this case... The source of the promise made to Noah and his sons, the source of the oath given to Noah and his sons was none other than the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the Lord God, the Almighty, the one, the only one who has not only the track record and ability to make such incredible promises, but to keep them and to fulfill them right down to every last minute detail. Why? Because he is in control of all things. He controls all things. So when he says to himself in Genesis chapter 6, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, that's what he's going to do. When he tells Noah straight up, just a few verses later, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh which has the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. That's what he is going to do. And when he tells us, man, back in chapter 6, to get your family and these animals onto that, that ark, and I will establish my covenant with you, that's exactly what he's going to do. And that's exactly what he does right here in Genesis chapter 9. 
And in between, he fulfills promise after promise after promise of preservation to get Noah to this very point in the narrative where when this specific promise is made in verse 10, Noah can consider the source and say, you know, Yahweh has done every little thing he said he would do. He's done everything he said he would do up to this point. Why would I fail to trust him now? I believe him. That's considering the source. I'm here to tell you this morning, my brothers and sisters, that like Noah, you can trust in the word of God. Like Noah, you can trust the word of Yahweh. He will never fail you. He will never go back on his promises. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's not fickle or capricious. He's not temperamental. He's not incapable as so many men of our day, as all men of our day. Man will let you down. Man will fail you. But Yahweh is no mere man. In fact, Paul says, let God be true, though every man a liar. I remember when my wife and I were engaged 12 years ago. Better get a drink for this one. (laughs) Remember when we were engaged 12 years ago? I said, listen, I just want to be real with you. Don't trust me. I mean, don't place your trust in me fully. Because I am finite. I am weak. I am wretched. I will fail you. I will blow it. Almost every day. I will not meet those expectations that you have for me. Do not place all of your trust in me as a husband. Exactly what every young woman woman wants to hear from her fiancé. two months before the wedding. I said, no, don't trust me fully. Instead, place your trust in the one whom I've submitted my life to and committed my life to. Trust in the one who died for my sin and who made me a new uh, creation by his grace alone and therefore is the one whom I long to please in everything I do, including how I conduct myself as a husband. Trust him not me. As the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. I can't live up to those expectations. Only the Lord can. Therefore, only the Lord is is worthy of our absolute trust. Not any man. It's extremely important that we know and trust the source of this promise before we get into the specifics of this promise, okay? Yahweh alone deserves your ultimate trust. Only God. Because in a world full of falsehoods and deception and people not living up to their word, God is truth. God's word is truth. Jesus said it himself, sanctify them by the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. Exodus 34 says, he abounds in loving kindness and truth. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not establish it? You know, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, found that out real quick, didn't he? 
One day he was walking out on the rooftop of his palace, giving glory to himself in the sight of God, who had just interpreted dreams through his servant Daniel, saying, look what I have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Not a moment later, a voice comes from heaven and says, wait a minute, what? Excuse me? Uh, the house you built? Your strength? Your power? For your glory? Your majesty? Hmm. Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is said, the kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. That's the real kingmaker, not the Bilderbergs. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished. He started eating grass like a cow. His hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails become like, became like bird's claws. And at the end of those days, when Yahweh restored the king, he had a different boast in his mouth, and his boast was in the Lord Most High. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, I see a lot of people these days saying, what have you done? Not Nebuchadnezzar, not at this point. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true. All his works are true. All his ways are just, this king says. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. All his works are true. All his works are true. And all his words are true. Meaning, in whatever season... In whatever is going on in each and every one of your lives, you can stand firm on every promise of his word. You can stand firm on the solid rock of truth, no matter what. Amen? Amen. That's right. So, now that the firm foundation has been established, this, the firm foundation of the promise, now that we know the source of the promise... Now we can get into the scope and specifics of the promise. First of all, the scope of the promise. Verse 9.2 in your outlines. Yahweh says, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So, we see the promise expanding beyond Noah and his sons in verse 8. In fact, it's extended to their wives as well, but not only their wives, but to their seed. This is a, a perpetual covenant throughout the generations, and not only their seed, however, which is all mankind, right? But now we see the promise even ex expanding to beyond mankind. The promise even expands to, uh, includes animal kind. Every living creature that is with you, 
Yahweh says, all the birds, all the cattle, all the beasts, everyone who comes out of that ark and their seed after them. The scope of this promise has been given to include all things throughout all generations. Again, I ask you, who can make such a promise? Who could make such a promise to not only include every man and beast at that time, but to their seed and their offspring after them? Who could possibly make such a far-reaching promise? Who could possibly ensure that this promise was kept? Well, the one who, as Isaiah 46 says, has declared the end from the beginning. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not yet been done. Saying, my counsel will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That may be one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He has declared the end from the beginning. The promise is already kept in his eyes. It's been kept. It's been accomplished. It's done. In one sense, we're all just along for the ride. In one sense. Let me ask you this morning. Is such a God worthy of all your trust? Of all your hope? Is such a God worthy of uh, banking the eternal destination of your everlasting soul upon? Is such a God worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your obedience, of your devotion? Is such a God worthy of your love? I would agree. A resounding yes. God says to Noah, I am establishing my covenant with you. I'm making my covenant with you, is another way to say it. Notice, not, I'm hoping we can enter into a covenant together. (laughs) Not, you know, I'm wondering, can we enter into a covenant together? I mean, if you're not doing anything else this weekend. (laughs) Not, hey, I stand at the door and knock. Would you do, what would you do for me if I did this for you? He didn't say that. Not, listen up, Noah. If you do this, this, and this, I will do this, this, and this. No, this isn't really even an option for Noah. Though this has been called the Noahic covenant, it's really only because it was communicated to a man named Noah. But this man has again been relegated relegated to a mere recipient of God's divine favor, not an instigator of it or an inciter of it, Uh, This promise comes not as a reaction to the faithfulness of Noah and his sons because this covenant goes way beyond Noah and his sons to all flesh and all generations and is in fact still being upheld to this very day, this very hour, again some 4,300 years or 1.5 million days later. And Yahweh's kept true to his word the whole time, the whole time. What word? What promise? What specific covenant did he make? Well, verse 11, point three in your outlines. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. There shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, chapter six through eight, this was a one-time event. We heard it, we examined it, we studied it, but it's a one-time occurrence. For Yahweh, who never lies, who never changes, has sworn, has promised, has declared, that's not going to happen again. Trust me. Never again will all flesh be cut off. He repeats it. One of the many repetitions in our passage. Just in case you didn't hear me, Noah. 
There shall never again be a flood to destroy all the earth. Now, two things are important to point out here. Number one, the qualifier of the promise. Number two, the universality of the promise. First of all, the qualifier. Notice how careful Yahweh is with the wording of the specifics of this promise. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. There shall never be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, have there been floods since? Major floods? Floods which have decimated entire cities, lands which have killed millions and millions of people? Oh, yeah. But there's never been one again which has destroyed the whole earth. Even the greatest floods throughout the history have been local floods. They've been regional floods. One in China in the late 1800s killed two million, two million people, they say. But that wasn't all flesh. That was regional. God says here, the whole earth and all who are in it will not be wiped out again, blotted out again by water. By water. It's not going to happen. And it hasn't happened. That's the qualifier. He didn't say anything to Noah, of course, about everything being wiped out by another means. He just said all flesh would not be cut off by flood, nor will the earth be destroyed by flood. So we see the qualifier of the promise, not by the flood. And also the universality of the promise. Again, all flesh shall never again be cut off by the flood. We've already seen that this was a promise which included not only the people and animals on the ark, but in fact their seed, their generations. This further eliminates the possibility of this flood being a local phenomenon which occurred only in Noah's particular region alone. It wasn't local, it was global. This, this flood was universal in nature. So the covenant is universal in nature. All flesh on the earth, except what was in the, this ark, perished in God's judgment. Therefore, all flesh now receives this promise of God's restraining his future judgment by water, right? So there's a universality to this covenant here. The, the particulars which remain intact to this very day, which makes absolutely perfect sense when we consider the source, when we consider the one who is making the promise. So, we've seen the source of the promise, the scope of the promise, the specifics of the promise, and now the sign, the sign of the promise. Verse 12.4 in your outline. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Uh, for all successive generations. There you go again. Not just you and these animals, Noah. This is a perpetual covenant to all who come after you. It's universal. It's perpetual. This is the sign, he says. Verse 13, I will put my bow in the cloud. It shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Again, the scope and specifics. All successive generations, all flesh, all living creatures will be spared from judgment by water. Eight times in this passage, Yahweh refers to the universality of this covenant. This, this unilateral 
unconditional covenant he makes with all flesh. Unilateral, again, is one-sided. He's making this covenant. Unconditional. There's no strings attached here. This is all of Yahweh. He says, I will put my bow in the cloud. Whose bow? His bow. That's right. Not our bow, it's his bow. In whose cloud? Who's bringing the cloud? Is it our cloud? No. It's his cloud. When I bring a cloud. Whose covenant? Noah's covenant? No. God's covenant. With all living things, but mainly for himself. For the benefit of his creatures upon the earth, but mainly with himself. He says, here's the sign. I will put my bow in the cloud. Now, what kind of bow are we talking about here? Well, the word is kesheth. It's most commonly uh, used to describe instruments of war. For example, as Joshua declares the many ways which Yahweh has been faithful to the people of Israel, including uh, preserving them, providing for, him, for them, demonstrating his loyal love to them as his covenant people, delivering him, them from the hands of their many enemies, we're told this, thus says Yahweh, I sent the hornet before you. It drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword, not by your bow. Kesheth, your bow. You remember last week we talked about the wicked governors of this country pushing their bloodthirsty agendas on the masses? We said if a man does not repent, Yahweh will sharpen his sword. He, will, he has bent his bow, Kesheth, and prepared it. So we have a bow, which is used to symbolize war, judgment, wrath even. Yet here we see God putting or setting aside his bow in the cloud, almost as if he's hanging it up with no arrows. I'm hanging up future judgment and wrath against all flesh, against the earth. With this qualifier, however, I will never again destroy all flesh. I will never again destroy the earth with the flood. The qualifier is very important here. With the flood. We know that the corrupted earth will be destroyed in the future. Peter says as much in his second epistle, just before the ushering in of the new heavens and the, the new earth of this, uh, the new heavens and new earth, this world will be gone. Gone. But its end will not come by flood, but rather by fire. This is reserved for fire. However, here we see God saying, I know man is still sinful. I know that he still has an evil heart from his youth, yet my future earthly judgment against sin will not be universal as this last one was. It's not going to happen. In fact, I'm going to hang my weapon of war in my clouds as a, as a reminder to myself that I made this promise on this day. You'll see it, Noah. Your seed will see this bow. And boy, do we see it, right? His keshes, keshes in the clouds. Same word is described to you, uh, uh, used to describe a rainbow, of course. A rainbow. Ezekiel describes as much as he beholds the radiance of the glory of God, chapter 1, verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow... Kesheth, same word. In the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the radiance all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Of course, it's his bow. It's his rainbow. 
We even see it in the throne room of heaven in the revelation to John. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. A rainbow. Now I've heard this theory that um, God pointed his bow upwards. That if he ever violated this covenant, it would be pointing toward heaven. Almost like he's threatening himself. Eh. I'd certainly tip my cap to people who have such clever imaginations. Something tells me the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth isn't holding himself hostage here. I don't know, just a hunch. Plus, a rainbow is actually a full circle. Did you know that? It's a full circle. We only see half of it because we're looking up from the earth. If we were all to get on a plane right now and we would go skydiving this afternoon in this winter storm, <laughs> pretend it was... March, though. We were going out, and we saw a rainbow in the clouds. What we'd see is, an, is a full circle. We'd see a full circle. We wouldn't just see a bow. Uh, it's a matter of perspective, you see. Now, interestingly, in real life, nobody will ever see the same rainbow in the same way because the characteristics of it uh, vary based on the position of our individual eyes in relation to the sun and to the precipitation. So we're not going to see the same rainbow twice, unless we see a picture of it. But in real life, we're not going to see the same one twice. Either way, this is a sign, okay? And it's a sign primarily for God. Again, we can see it. We can take comfort in it. Anytime you see a rainbow, you can say, oh, another day has gone by where the Lord has kept his promise. But unlike other signs, including the Abrahamic covenant and circumcision, the Mosaic covenant and the Sabbath, even the new covenant and the cup, which symbolizes the blood of his sacrifice, unlike the other signs, the sign of this covenant is primarily for Yahweh, for him to remember it. Not that he would ever forget anything, but this is just the means by which he is determined to demonstrate his faithful to us, faithfulness to us, that he keeps his promises What a wonderful sign, by the way. What a wonderful sign. Rainbows are so majestic. Uh, They're so stunningly beautiful and radiant, right? Aren't they? I love what Franz Delich said. Shining upon a dark ground, the rainbow represents the victory of the light of love over the fiery darkness of wrath. Originating from the effect of the sun upon a dark cloud, it typifies the willingness of the heavenly to, p- to penetrate the earthly, excuse me. Stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both, and spanning the horizon, it points to the all-embracing universality of the divine mercy. That's good stuff. But honestly, when I think of the rainbow today, I can't help but think about the blasphemous irony and just the overall lunacy of the homosexual movement's adoption of this sign, this covenant sign as their logo, or whatever it is. I mean, God just destroyed the entire earth because of sin. He killed everyone on this planet because of wickedness, because of their rampant perversity and immorality and just overall evil. And then he uses a rainbow as a sign to say, look, I will bestow a common grace upon all future generations. Here's how I'll remember it. Here's how you'll see it. It's a rainbow, okay? 
And these folks have the audacity to come along and adopt the rainbow as the key identifying symbol, uh, symbol of a movement that is characterized by some of the most egregious and unnatural sins committed against this very same God. That's crazy. This was e- either done as one, a blatant thumbing of the nose toward our creator who, who views homosexuality as an abomination, two, a wicked presumption that he would forgive them of their sin in the same unconditional manner, or three, just plain arrogance or ignorance or foolishness. I tend to think it's the latter. Either way, it may be among the most ironic self-owns in all of human history, and it would be hilarious if it wasn't so darn tragic right? Yahweh says, I put my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. He then says in verse 16, final point in your outlines, so the bow shall be in the cloud. I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Note the continued repetition here. The assurance, the blessed assurance of the promises of God's word. I will hang my bow. I will look upon it. It's universal. It's perpetual. It's everlasting, which can either mean until the end of the world or to signify eternity future. In this case, of course, to the end of the world. I will remember my covenant. I will remember this day. I will remember my promise and it will not be broken. Here's the sign for my recollecting and for your reassuring. Think about how incredible this is that the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth would so condescend that he would actually seek to comfort his people through this promise. And not only to comfort them, but to continue to pour out his abundant mercy, his amazing grace upon men and women who really deserve nothing but his wrath and then to record it as a consolation to all generations to come, including us here today. We get to hear this promise being made, the very words that he spoke some 4,000 years ago, words which should comfort our souls as much as they comforted Noah's soul on that day and the the seven who were with him. Martin Luther said, uh, Likewise, we in our day need this consolation. At all times when the elements rage, we may be secure in the thought that the fountains of heaven and the wells of the deep are closed up by the word of God. The rainbow shows itself to this, to this day for the purpose of symbolizing that henceforth there shall never be a, another general flood. And this promise requires on our part the faith that we trust God in his mercy will never bring another great flood upon us. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me just ask you this morning. Do you trust in this same God as you hear my voice today? Do you trust in his word? Do you trust in the promises of his everlasting word? Do you trust in his word 
where, when it says that he is the author of life, that he is the creator of all things, he's the maker, the ruler, the sustainer of all things, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Do you trust in his word, which says that he cares for his creatures, not just the beast of the field, not just the, bird of the birds of the sky, but even those who have willfully sinned against him? those who were born his enemies, born under his judgment already, those who willfully broke his perfect law, failed in every aspect to live up to the per- his perfect expectation for our lives. Do you trust in his word which says that he takes sin very seriously? He takes sin and transgressing his law very seriously, so seriously, in fact, that at one point he sent a flood to wipe out nearly the entire population of this globe. Hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people. Do you trust that he is concerned with our sin? And that he just doesn't blow it off. We pray some prayer or get our get-out-of-hell-free card. Do, Do you believe that in spite of your own sin, he still cares for you? that he sustains your very life at this moment, that in his common grace, whether you're here this morning as a believer or unbeliever, uh, he has showered an abundance of grace and mercy upon you, first by his not killing you dead the very moment that you sinned against him, but even by allowing you to enjoy the good things in this life, the sun, the rain, a starry night, a warm meal, laughter, love, friends, family, art, nature, music, not being wiped out by a global flood, Do you believe his word which says that he cares for you through his common grace? Do you believe his word when he says, I so love the world? That in spite of the world's collective corruption, in spite of the wickedness, in spite of the sin and the death and the murder and all things that grieve his heart, do you believe him when he says, I love this world? Do you believe his word that says because he is just, perfectly just, because he is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, that as much as he loves the world and the people in the world, he must punish sin? That he must inflict his righteous wrath upon sinners, upon divine law breakers? Do you believe his word which says there's a day of judgment coming? Do you believe that by that same word that destroyed the earth through the, fu- uh, the flood in the beginning that the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire? Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of go- ungodly men? Do you believe that? Do you believe his word which tells of a coming judgment? Do you believe his word which says that these ungodly men and women will be judged and destroyed for all of eternity in a place of outer darkness? a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and a place apart from even the common graces and mercies that we get to enjoy today? Do you believe that? Do you believe his word when he tells of a literal place called hell, a lake of fire? Because we have all gone astray each to our own way, because we have all sinned against him and fallen short of his glory, that all of us, every last one of us, deserve to go to this place of everlasting torment? Do you believe that? Do you believe his word then when he says that he has called out a people from having to endure this judgment? 
that there's a special love of God for those who belong to him, that there's a loyal love, a saving love, an electing love, a faithful love demonstrated to those who are his. Do you believe his word which says that there's a people upon whom he has set this love even from before the foundations of the earth? And are you one of those? That's the question. You say, well, how do I know? How can I possibly know? Do you believe his word? Do you believe him? That's the distinguishing mark. Has the Holy Spirit made you alive to believe and trust in his word? Do you believe his word, which says that he sent his savior into the world? His Messiah, his Christ, to take the place of and bear the penalty of sin for all who belong to him, all who would but believe in his word believe in his gospel and call upon his name alone for salvation? Do you believe the qualifying statement in what is perhaps the most well-known passage of scripture in the whole Bible, that the same God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? That's what he says. Do you believe him? That's what I'm asking you. Do, Do you believe that he gave his son, the one spoken of by the prophets, God the son who came to this earth that he spoke into existence, to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law, yet because he was God, uh, he would never deviate from the law of God from the left to the right, in either thought, word, or deed. Do you believe that he did in fact come, just as Yahweh promised? Do you believe that he came and walked among us, that he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, only to be delivered into the hands of lawless men, to be killed, to be nailed to a Roman cross where he would breathe his last with his lungs collapsing under the weight of his own body as he bore the full weight of sin, as he took on the full penalty for sinners like us. Do you believe it? As he was separated from his father for the first time in all of eternity so that this people, this chosen, called, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled people would never have to be again. Do you believe that so great a salvation, so great a deliverance from the Father's just judgment is only available for those who come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? All all who will be sealed with his Holy Spirit to spend all of eternity in his presence, praising his holy name for what's been done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Noah, do you believe the word of God, my brothers and sisters? Yes or no? I pray that you do. I pray that you do. I pray that you would consider the source and take him at his word. If you're not sure, you're not absolutely sure this morning, I would like to invite you to place the trust in the same God who promised long ago to never again flood the earth, who has lived up to that promise and who will live up to that promise, just as he'll live up to every promise made in his holy and inspired word. I pray that you would hear his call through his word this morning. That you would come to him. I bid you come to the Father this morning through Jesus the Son. I I bid you turn from your sin, turn from this world, and turn to your creator by faith alone. Come to him. I implore you by the mercy of God, come to the Father through Christ. He is both willing and able to save your soul from the wrath to come. 
Amen? Amen. Amen. Pray with me now and we'll have Noel and the music team come up and close us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, what a joy, what a delight, what a privilege, a tremendous privilege it is to stand on every promise of your word, including the promise that we heard this morning. We were so undeserving, Lord, of your grace, your mercy, your love, but you have poured it out upon us in droves, your common grace first and then your saving grace. We're so grateful, so grateful for your son So grateful for the gospel, so thankful for the promise of redemption and reconciliation that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in his name we pray, amen.